One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Truth and Movies. Today, post-Thanksgiving, James Franco reheats Old Turkey in epic reenactment of Tommy Wiseau's The Room, widely regarded as worst film ever made that wasn't called Transformers something. Also, Blade of the Immortal, Takasha Mika, with more cuts than a Republican tax plan, a similarly feudal worldview, and as much regard for ordinary people's health care. Meanwhile, The Room, worst film ever, Hold My Beer, says this week's Film Club, as we saw with Bruce Willis's ego in Hudson Hawk. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. On board today's Truth and Movies, we've got Adam Woodward. Hello. And just Adam Woodward. Yes. And we're awfully sorry. Beth Webb was meant to be with us. There was a mix-up with the time. Whose fault was that, Adam? Totally, completely, 100% our fault. No, it was my fault, actually. It was my fault. I was willing to take part of the hit. (laughs) No, you're here, listener, and that's the main thing. At least I think you are. Uh, Anyway, now, Nick wrote in, talking about Wonder, actually. He says, I saw Wonder on Sunday night, took my nine-year-old daughter. She loved the book, and Nick thought the film was fine, but his biggest issue was the way that the affluence of everyone involved inoculated everyone from reality, taking place in some magical fairyland version of New York. This was something that Hannah, I think, was touching on a little bit, the way that it, it wanted to talk about issues but without ever getting into the the gritty reality of it Mm. Uh, Alex uh, comments uh, on our message board about the films you'd see just for the actor debate that we were having they agree with Sam Rockwell and nominate Woody Harrelson who's developed into a supremely watchable actor Uh, but top of the pile says Alex is Tommy Lee Jones what an actor what a face Alex then suggests Adam Three Burials of Milikiadis Estrada for Film Club. Doesn't do a very good job of selling it, because Alex goes on to say it's a flawed film with poor pace and it's a bit anticlimactic. But it does illustrate my point perfectly. So his point is that Tommy Lee Jones is able to elevate even sort of substandard material. Yeah, I guess so. I had a little Tommy Lee Jones' face. Yeah, just his face. I had a little look back through his filmography. Ah. And, uh, I mean, he's been in some amazing films, but I think the last really, really great one that he did was called In the Valley of Ella. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't saw see that. that. Really good. Uh, um, did you have any thoughts on Wonder? Because, of course, I, I breezed past that one. You weren't here with us last week. I regret to say I haven't got around to seeing it okay. yet. Dimitro Dominski has written in largely for the pleasure of hearing me try to pronounce <laughs> his name. Uh, we'll be having further attempts at that, no doubt, in future weeks. But for now, he says... In the light of recent events, should we consider Netflix Icarus as film of the year? And are there any good political films, not documentaries or detective ones like All the President's Men? I couldn't think of many. However, I do not watch movies for a living, says Dimitro. 
Well, funnily enough, I was just talking to producer Ian about Icarus ah. before we came in here. And uh, yeah, I, we're putting together our top tens for the year mm. at the moment. I, I think it may well uh, sneak into mine. It's quite a remarkable film. Excellent. Uh, all, all about kind of cycling and doping and uh, yeah. goes into all sorts of crazy territory. So yeah, worth e- checking out. Ever so topical. Very good. We are going to be moving on to film number one for us this week, The Disaster Artist, after this. The Disaster Artist, James Franco's reenactment of The Room, not the Jacob Tremblay, Brie Larson kidnapped family drama, but the utterly bizarre film produced by the weird and mysterious Tommy Wiseau, this film telling the story of how Tommy meets up with his soon-to-be BFF Greg Sestero, and together they make their Hollywood dreams come true. Here is Tommy walking in on Greg and his new girlfriend. Tommy, hey. Hey. What was this? Uh, this is Amber, who I was telling you about. Oh, girlfriend. Um, I, I don't know. Um, okay. Well, I don't have time for this. I'm very busy right now. I have to change really quickly and go. Okay. Is, is everything all right? Yeah, everything great on my end. You heard of Konstantin Stanislavski? Of course. Yeah, he's like the greatest acting teacher of all time. Yeah. And now he taught me acting teacher. He seemed something special in me. You know, maybe, you know, I'll become a big star. So I have first class this evening. Well, pretty sure Stanislavski's dead. No, he's not dead. I just speak to him for your information. What do you think I speak to, ghost? No. no. Okay, I'll let you know how it is, baby face. Maybe you can join me someday. Maybe I will. Tommy Wiseau then, an astonishing impression as the film makes plain in its closing credits when it has a kind of side-by-side run of Tommy Wiseau, the original, and James Franco's version of him. Why is Tommy Wiseau's The Room regarded as the worst film ever? I guess it's one of those films that's just so bizarre and so so singular at the same time. There's an amazing story behind it. And, and this film, The Disaster Artist, is based in part on a book, a kind of account written uh, by Greg Sestero, who is uh, Tommy Wiseau's long-suffering friend and co-star in The Room. And... Uh, you know, it's this sort of Hollywood myth, really. It's just like a modern myth. And I think the film, the original film, The Room, was made in 2003. Uh, although, as we see here, it took them quite a long time to actually make it. It was completely self-funded by Tommy Wiseau. People may, may remember the uh, the famous billboard that he had put up on Sunset Boulevard that was there for like five years or something, um, which James Franco has replicated and he has his own one up there now. And it's just a kind of fascinating, bit of an underdog story, I guess. But the, mm. the real myth of the film is, is all around Tommy Wiseau. I mean, there's all this stuff about who he is. No one really knows how old he is, where he's from. He has this bizarre well, accent. and he, Where his money's from. Where his money's from, because the budget for the room is estimated to be around $6 million or something. Mm. A wonderful bit in this, actually, when they finally uh, get around to deciding they're going to make the film, they go to a uh, uh, somewhere to hire some kit like lights and cameras and all that stuff, and they decide they're just going to go and buy it all like outright, even though it doesn't really make any sense to because they're just making this one movie. But that's, you know, Tommy's idea of how to make a film, and th- this is what you need to do if you're if you're going to be a big Hollywood director. Um, and it's it's kind of a, a beautiful story, actually. And I, I saw a fascinating interview on, uh, it might have been Jimmy Fallon or Kimmel or one of those guys, and James Franco was basically saying, you know, plenty of people talk about making movies and they just sit around and it's, it's a pipe dream that never comes to fruition. And mm. actually, Tommy, for better and for worse, actually did it. He made his, his sort of dream come true and fair play to him. Mm. 
Yeah, it's an interesting balance, isn't it, between celebrating the fact that he actually went out there and made his movie and also illustrating to the audience just what an awful movie he made. And I'm not sure if, if it manages it all the way through. While, while I hugely enjoyed The Disaster mm. Artist, I, I was left a little bit troubled by the end. Franco's direction, though, and he is an actor who... He likes to play the kind of good-time guy. A lot of his film choices are very much the stoner end of, mm. uh, of the market, but th- this is a very well-directed film. It is. I mean, it really shows his capacity as a director to put himself in the movie as well. I mean, he is doing this amazing impersonation. If you've never seen The Room before, and frankly, I don't really recommend anyone to check it out because the stuff around the film, the story about it, is much more interesting than the actual film. But yeah, Franco gives this amazing impersonation and the idea that he you know, has been quite, I guess, single-minded in bringing this film together is in a way a sort of loose parallel of what happened with, with Tommy and obviously Franco is an established movie mm. star so it's a lot easier for him and um, I, I think he, he gets the balance right for me in terms of the telling the story and also not completely crapping on Tommy Rizzo and the room. I mean, it's quite affectionate, I think, in his portrayal. It doesn't necessarily pull any punches but he's not... I don't think it's overly sneering or, or mm. dismissive of, of him. Well, Tommy Wiseau and, to an extent, Greg Sestero, who, who wrote the kind of tell-all memoir of, of the film being made, have turned what was originally intended to be a serious film into almost a deliberately bad... Mm. Uh, I mean, they're now living off its awfulness oh, yeah. uh, to an extent, and, and Tommy Wiseau certainly been quite involved in the publicity for this film. I did enjoy this film tremendously. It's very, very funny... And Franco, I think, is amazing. His, his impersonation of Tommy Wiseau, as you say, without it's not a slapstick impersonation. Mm. There is affection in there, but it's absolutely note perfect. And there's an extended sequence for me, a little bit overextended, mm-hmm. in the end credits, as I say, when they just do a split screen with their version of the room and the original side by side. And it, it's essentially the same movie. It's funny to watch. I mean, that for me was the best part of the film, mm. actually. It's funny to watch that knowing how how excruciating the original film was for everyone else involved, all the crew, all the cast. I mean, you see it in this film, the behind the scenes where he would be doing 50, 60 takes just because he he was so bad at delivering or even remembering his lines, for instance. Paralleling that with the obvious enjoyment that they had making The Disaster Artist. I mean, you can kind of see, or you you get a sense of how fun it must have been to recreate Mm. those scenes. Well, he's got his brother on board. The first time, curiously, that Dave and James Franco have appeared in in the same film. Seth Rogen also turning up, doing sterling work as a man who actually knows about movie making yeah, yeah. and can't quite believe what he's witnessing. As I say, the, the one qualm I had, I think it comes down to this, Franco is very much part of the Hollywood establishment. He's got his own game going on and he's very much at the centre of that. And there's a slight sense by the end that while they dress it up as a celebration of a man who actually, you know, there's a speech in the premiere of, of The Room at the End where Dave says to James, it doesn't matter that everyone's laughing at your film. Mm because you actually got, went out there and, and made this movie. Yeah. There's, a, there's a slight sense of the Hollywood establishment laughing at the, the hick who, who thought he could come to town and, and make a, a movie, but it is a tremendously entertaining watch. And I think, you know, people you know, are, are sincere in, in their enjoyment of The Room, whether it's because it's so bad that it's actually good. I mean... Yeah, I'm do, not sure that helps. Do... If you make a movie, does it matter that, that people are enjoying it because you made it so badly? It, it's interesting. I think you'd have to question what Tommy's original intention was with the movie because mm. actually he's making something which is very earnest. He's inspired by, like, you know, old James Dean movies and, and things like that. He thinks he's making a, a serious sort of drama, I suppose. And ultimately, I think the fact that so many people have taken so much joy from it is a positive thing. And there's a reason the film The Room still packs out screenings at like the Prince Charles in London and 
it has this global fan base now that a lot of bad films obviously don't get. I don't know why this was kind of singled out. I guess this, the character, the main person driving the whole thing, is just such a weird character. He's so enigmatic. He's so enigmatic. Yeah. Um, even now, I mean, we're talking about the, the the enigma around his age and where he's from. No one really knows. I mean, even James Franco spent a lot of time with him doesn't really know, or at least he's not giving anything away. Well, yeah, I, th- I imagine somebody must know, but I think it probably works in the disaster artist's favour that he, he remains this great, mm. vaguely uh, Bela Lugosi-esque uh, <laughs> yeah. mystery. Franco described the script as a cross between Boogie Nights and The Master, which, of course, were both the PTA yeah. movies. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I mean, I, I did enjoy this film. I don't think it ever reaches that point where it's it's saying something more profound about the industry or you know about the idea of like enigmatic almost cult figures this works on a on a very meta but also quite kind of superficial level for me and and not not much deeper than that right we're famed for our use of the word glib in here is oh, are it, we? would this be a good time to bust it out or not go for it no I, that was all I was going to say <laughs> forget that bit i wonder if off the back of this anyone's going to go to tommy Wiseau and say here's a fat budget or well, not the need one what next can you come up with? Because there's going to be so much notoriety for for him mm. and, and his, his movie, The Room 2. I mean, it's been a very much a cult thing and, mm. and an underground thing, I suppose, for quite a long time. And people within the industry know it. But people in the, in the wider film world and general public maybe don't know it. So this is, for many people, will be an introduction to that. I wonder if he will just ride that way for, for a longer now, a longer period. But yeah. maybe we'll have a Room 2. I don't know. I'd be surprised. I mean, I think he's probably at a point now where he can just kind of keep doing, you know, appearances at room screenings. And But in this film, he's, he's burning with such a desire to become first an actor and then a director, but basically make movies. That living off one movie from 15 years ago, I wonder if he'd be tempted. But anyway, that's uh, we're flying off on a tangent there. Give this some scores, Adam. I think I would go for three for anticipation just because... Yeah, I've seen the room, but I haven't like. It doesn't hold a special place in my heart, frankly. And James Franco can be a bit hit and miss, I think, as a director more than an actor. But I'd say four at the time, and then possibly three afterwards. Mm. I, I was uh, hugely looking forward to this. Uh, I'd seen the trailer, which is pretty much just one of the choice moments from the film played out straight, which is the rooftop scene. I did not hit her. Tommy Wiseau's repeated attempts to capture that line. The film, as I say, was very entertaining at the time. I'd probably give it a four. Afterwards, yeah, three or a two. Slightly sat uneasy with me, this this kind of celebration of, of, of awfulness and, and the fact that the film's a little bit trying to have its cake and eat it too. There's a lot of that about at the moment. In, in terms of making a movie out of how bad somebody else was at making a movie, but then at the end having a little bit of a it doesn't matter because you know every loser wins, everybody gets a medal. I think the biggest selling point for this film is that James Franco has gone in with a view to just making something that is entertaining and is fun and and does kind of celebrate and share that joy and the revelry of the room and, and everything that came after it. So I think he does that quite well. Mm. Good. Also. Well, that's The Disaster Artist. Next up, plenty more people dying on screen in Blade of the Immortal. Blade of the Immortal, everybody, which is the... Adam, 100th film from Takashi Miike, is that right? Uh, Yeah, Miike, I think so, yeah. All right, apologies if I got that wrong. It stars Takuya Kimura as Manji, who's a highly skilled samurai who becomes cursed with immortality after a pretty legendary battle, 
lovely battle in black and white at the start yeah, of the yeah. film. Years later, haunted by the death of his sister, uh, Manji meets a young girl who reminds him enormously of her, and he ends up becoming her bodyguard. She seeks revenge against a group of master swordsmen, the Iturui, who themselves possess skills that do seem otherworldly. Mm. How much did you enjoy this one, Adam? Yeah, he's sort of flirting with the uh, supernatural a little bit here, which he's not mm. always done. It's a return to the Shogun era for Mika. And uh, as you say, his 100th film is by far, I think, Japan's most prolific director. Not all of his films are worth watching, I will say that. I think this is probably his best since 13 Assassins, okay. which is similarly uh, quite brutal and, uh, you know, 100 miles a minute. Really is it shorter? Actually, I, th- I think... 13 Assassins is like three hours. Is it really? It's, yeah, it's really long. It's a proper, like, epic. Okay. I, I mean, like, Kurosawa this is two, levels. Right. Epic, yeah. yeah, this is two and a quarter hours, I think. Yeah, I don't think this... It didn't feel particularly long to me. I would say I love the characters. I think the, mm. the little girl especially, who, who he sort of takes under his wing, is brilliant. To me, it, it's very entertaining in the moment. The fight scenes are just... He's an amazing uh, choreographer of, of these action sequences. I think it so bludgeons you, though, with that. After a while, it kind of wore me down to the point where, I mean, the bodies keep piling up, and it, and it is quite a kind of violent and, and gory film, obviously, but, yeah, really, it really started to lose its effect on me towards mm. the end. Is there any... Has anyone done a study of how many people actually get chopped to pieces on the in actual body count yeah no but if anyone out there is willing to tally that up for us I'd be fascinated it's certainly it, in three figures isn't it I would, I would imagine so I mean, it's, I, it's one of those where it's almost preposterous that he's okay he's introduced his legendary samurai but yeah. um, there's, there's like he'll be in the middle of a, a pile of people and he'll just be single handedly you know batting them away mm. and, often single handedly because they've chopped his other one off yes exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we should say the supernatural element is essentially these magic worms that live inside him mm. uh, that essentially make him immortal as, as per the title keep so. his weight down as well yeah yeah He's great, actually. I enjoyed Takua Kimura as, mm. as Manji, this quite kind of deadpan. Was there a slight Leon element to this? You know, echoing uh, last week's film club, you have a, a an assassin, mm. albeit one with worms, and a, a young waif whose family's been slaughtered. I hadn't picked up on that, but I think you're, you're spot on there, yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. As you say, his choreography is extraordinary. In fact, there's one point, I'd say one point, that the big finale, without giving anything away, mm. he says... You enjoy me choreographing a massive sword fight? Yeah. All right, I'll do two at once and have them both in frame, one foreground, one background. It's extraordinary. But I do entirely take your point that after a while, seeing people being s- slashed to pieces with a katano, mm. I think that's right, does get a, you know, a little repetitive. I think he does something really uh, beautiful and slightly unexpected with the very last uh, climactic fight sequence because suddenly the whole scene and atmosphere of the film drops a level and the music cuts out and I think he, I wonder whether that is actually him kind of setting it up like you've got to this point in the film you've gone through this incredibly brutal journey and bruising journey and you're so kind of worn down I, I did feel actually quite physically fatigued from it and I wonder whether that was Mika kind of saying you know there's this certain futility about mm-hmm. about basically what happens at the end and uh, I, th- I thought that was like really beautiful moment the, the end fight isn't is nothing really like the ones that have come before it. that's true and the narrative as well throughout and a lot of the dialogue is continually undercutting the notion of there being a good v evil struggle going mm. on it's there's it's a, it's a much more nuanced uh, story mm. uh, than that uh, i'm not familiar with to be fair any of the cast right. but i particularly enjoyed the member of the ituriu who appears as a monk at, at one point 
Oh yeah, he's he's particularly good. Mm. He's just got a really amazing eye for visuals as well and like iconography and and he really Mika really understands you know the history of of this samurai world I guess but he also modernizes it in an interesting way and there's a few nice things in there like there's a recurring thing where he takes the end of his samurai sword and kind of turns it into a, a, like a double-ended Darth Maul like Phantom Menace style yeah. which, which I'm sure Phantom Menace probably borrowed it from old samurai tradition maybe that that existed back then but yeah it ends up with this like double-headed sword which is just yeah it's a really cool moment I think right. in the film tremendous storyline to this as well bloodworms and mm. and and this wonderful group the Itoriyu very interesting uh, numbers then adam yeah i think probably three for me actually i, I do like mika but I, again he is quite hit and miss right. and you know, 13 Assassins I absolutely love. He made a film after that called Harakiri, which is essentially a samurai movie without any sword fighting in it, which bored me to tears. Wow. And uh, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I think the posters and, you know, the marketing for this have suggested something a bit more brutal. So mm. I was kind of looking forward to it. And a four at the time and probably uh, a three in retrospect. Okay. All right. Uh, but you would say that 13 Assassins is the Mika to, to seek out. Yeah, if, if you are a, a connoisseur of, of samurai movies, uh-huh. um, I would recommend this. I think 13 Assassins is probably like his masterpiece. Okay. If um, you found this one slightly repetitive with mm. the slashing, would you, find, would you have issues with 13 Assassins? I think what's great about 13 Assassins is it follows in the kind of samurai or Kurosawa samurai tradition of making these like epically mounted, epically scaled movies where mm. it is the the whole Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai thing of, of a troop coming together and, and you get this sense of their journey and, and the real action takes place at the end. I mean, the, I think probably 30% of the movie is one fight scene the whole film builds towards and right. it's just spectacular when it arrives because he, he just teases it and sets it up for so long. Um, whereas this is sort of the opposite of that. I mean, you're... You're straight in with the fight scenes. Yeah, and it's glorious really black bad. and white sequence at the start. Yeah. I, I give this a, th- a three. I mean, the, the title's pretty intriguing, Blade of the Immortal. Mm. Didn't know anything really about Mike uh, or his work. At the time, probably a three and th- three afterwards. I mean, I thought it was a, a gorgeous film to watch. I mean, it's beautiful to look at. It's, it's quite otherworldly. Mm. Uh, but there is an element of, of drudgery about the uh, magnificent swordplay. Essentially... Uh, for Manji getting through a hundred or so soldiers, it, it, he dispatched them with more or less the same way that you and I would get through the kind of morning commute or something. Mm. It's, oh, God, here's another hundred soldiers, bang, 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 bang. The bloodworms and his immortality doesn't help tremendously with the sense of tension about any of the sword fights he gets into. But that said, as I say, Mika brings plenty of other nuances in into play behind the, the simple kind of uh, sword duels. So, yeah, a three. And if you like seeing people hacked to death, this is very much a movie for you. I would say if you like things like Tarantino movies, this is probably for you. A film I'd recommend from a few years ago, The Assassin, mm. is uh, more my kind of cup of tea when it comes to these, these okay. movies. Which was um, a much slower film. A lot slower, but just every you know frame is, is a painting. It's absolutely beautiful. Right. And the, the female protagonist in it is extraordinary as well. I found that a very confusing film, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think it's a, you need to really pay attention and watch it maybe two or three times, but it's yeah worth, worth the payoff, I think. Okay. This one's more fun than The Assassin. If you've seen The Assassin, I'm going to say this one's more fun. All right, excellent. On next to our Little White Lies Film Club. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In honor of James Franco's resurrection of Tommy Wiseau and his The Room, widely regarded as the worst film ever made, it's kind of actually it's stick by now. Mm, I think it's trademarked as. It? Mm. We asked listeners to come up with their worst films ever, see if there's one that maybe justified a little bit of a revisit. We seem to have ended up, <laughs> although we managed to not tell anyone about it last week, uh, with Hudson Hawk. Here's a little clip of Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt doing their supervillain thing. Oh, why is the world jam-packed with such idiots? <sighs> Every schmo has the fantasy that the planet revolves around them. It rains, a car crash stops traffic, you say, how can this happen to me? But for us, this isn't a fantasy, it is a reality. Oh, yes! If Da Vinci was alive today, he'd be eating microwave sushi naked in the back of a Cadillac with the both of us. The project of his life is now the toy of mine. History, tradition, culture are not concepts. These are trophies I keep in my den as paperweights. Chaos will cause the world with this machine. Will be our final masterpiece. Hmm. Watch out for that falling column, Andy McDowell. <laughs> what did they make of this, Adam? Yeah, um, we separated this into the good, the bad and the mayor. Oh, I mean, okay. it really was quite a divisive film, I think, and, right. and for good reason. Plenty of people getting in touch. Kat Andreko on the good column says, it's flawed but fun film of its time. Uh, Michael Thompson says, I love it, but then I'd watch Brucey painting his living room and enjoy really? it. Really? Yeah. Mm. A certain David Jenkins describes it as 18 garbage fires, all circling one massive out-of-control garbage fire in the middle. Which I presume he is referring to Bruce Willis's performance there. Mm. Um, Caroline Eastwood, only film I've ever fallen asleep during. Really? Which is quite surprising, I, I am think. surprised by that, Caroline. Um, the Mayor, someone describes it as, has its moments, but is it a bit off somehow? Yeah, which is probably fair. Mark Commode likes this film, and he, he met Richard E. Grant and told him that he was one of the few people who enjoyed Hudson Hawk, Grant's response was, it was a stinking pile of steaming hot donkey droppings and you are an idiot. 
So there you go. Well, Richie Grant dedicated an entire a chapter of his memoir to this film, which I, I haven't read, but I, I'm going to go and see. Wow, I think having having sat through Hudson Hawk, I'm, I'm eager to know mm. what what Mr. Grant has to say about it. Well, if you didn't manage to catch Hudson Hawk, you're missing out actually on a great lost slice of what I assumed was 80s. You know, oh yeah, movie making, but it's actually from the 90s. In the same way that the seventies kind of spiraled on a little yeah, bit, yeah, it the spills 80s. over a little bit. This, yeah. this, and I think the last action hero really kind of marked mm. the end of the eighties. Well, it's it's from nineteen ninety one, but it feels like Was an eighties. Yeah, yeah, it, it feels is, like okay. an eighties movie. Oh, okay, it tells the story of Eddie Hawkins, aka the Hudson Hawk, who's just been released from ten years of prison. He's planning to spend his life honestly, but just when he thought he was out, the world's greatest cat burglar is drawn back in for. What you'd have to describe as his wildest job ever. Yeah, all he wants is a cappuccino. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could go on and try and describe the plot, but really I think it would be... It's an interesting plot. I would actually really like to see this movie remade mm. with a sensible director and a slightly less smirksome central character. I think we should tell a bit of the story of how this go film on, came then. about. So this was an idea that actually came from Bruce Willis himself in conjunction with his friend Robert Kraft. They yeah. met... Robert Kraft, the musician, who the story goes that Robert Kraft was playing a gig in possibly New York or Chicago or somewhere, and Bruce Willis was a bartender and struggling actor at the time, and uh, joined in uh, a song, basically came on stage with his harmonica and started playing along. And the two sparked up a friendship, and uh, one of the songs that Robert Kraft had at the time was called The Hudson Hawk, and somehow this idea of a cat burglar called The Hudson Hawk grew out of that. This film is Bruce Willis's first and, dare I say, final screenwriting credit. So he, you know, he gets a story credit on it, but basically his stock was pretty high at this point in mm-hmm. Hollywood. He'd made Die Hard, Die Hard 2, Bonfire of the Vanities had just come out, and I think when they were making this, it's screen-tested, and Bruce Willis's uh, character was, was supposedly getting good reactions. So they decided that although Willis initially had a small part in Hudson Hawk, after that, they were going to give him a much bigger role and essentially base the film around him. So it's a curious one, but it's it's the ultimate vanity project, I think, and a great case study of what happens when uh, basically no one's saying no to you. Including the director, Michael Lehman, whose stock, similarly to Bruce Willis, was, was pretty high at the time after his uh, directorial effort to Heathers. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's someone who was an up-and-coming director. He'd made Heathers, um, Meet the Applegates also in 91. Mm. Uh, this is very much his first uh, foray into blockbuster territory, and it's t- quite telling that he, he never made another film on this scale afterwards. It's a fascinating, you know, relic of its time. It doesn't really hold up, but then I don't think it ever made sense at the time either. So it's a strange one. I mean, the casting choice of Bruce Willis itself makes a lot of sense but then when you pair him with say Andy McDowell who I think was cast very last minute right? she clearly doesn't really grasp the character or, or the film that she's in you can kind of see her really struggling with, with where to kind of pitch the character um, but then you've got Danny Aiello who's very funny I think and his chemistry with Bruce Willis is, is actually quite good Did you think so? I thought that was one of the issues with the film that it's, it's a comedy that's not very funny <laughs> and it's a buddy movie where they didn't seem to be particularly buddies either mm. I mean they might have it, for me their on-screen chemistry was was a, on a par with uh, Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney and <laughs> Ebony and Ivory when you remember they, they filmed their, their bits separately and were yeah. just edited in in post. Well, 
apparently they're friends in real life, right? And, and they had a, a, a genuine. Well, that's my and mistake. Then I read that completely wrong. Oh yeah, well maybe you'd never know. But but then yeah, you, then you have Richard E. Grant really hamming it up as a sort of supervillain, and Sandra Bernhard, who you know we praise so much in an earlier film club when we talked about the King of Comedy and how, hmm. how great she's there. And yeah, I think she's pretty terrible in this. Strident. I don't think anyone really comes off. Well, Richard um, E. Grant is fun. He's kind of fun. I think, and it's... I thought Andy McDowell was okay actually, yeah. but it is it is a very confused film, tonally speaking. And I think that the longer it goes on, the more it becomes so. I mean, it's essentially Dan Brown meets the Three Stooges. Could we say that? I like the Dan Brown uh, reference, but I mean, some of the slapstick. There's a fight scene towards the end, which is very much Three Stooges, and mm. I think there's an attempt to reference that. I mean, Willis himself says that. Uh, well, here's a quote from Bruce Willis. He says it has very intellectual hip humour in it. He says of his own screenplay. It has very sophomoric, broad slapstick comedy. It has elements of a road picture. It has rom- more romance than any film that I've ever done. It has action. It has big stunts. It has a very dark sensibility. It is a film that needs to be experienced more than explained. Yeah. It is a difficult one to explain, to be yeah. fair. It's a strange one. I think that ultimately it isn't even necessarily a product of its time, but it is something that you don't get anymore. I mean, Hollywood... It is kind of averse to making these, like, what we call now as a medium-sized blockbuster-style movie of, of $60, $70 million budget. And Hudson Hawk, you have to say, is part of the reason maybe why those films don't exist anymore. Mm. Um, it wasn't but, in vain, then. Well, no, I mean, I, I would say that I would much rather see a film like Hudson Hawk being made today than, say, a new Die Hard movie. Interesting. Certainly more than a new Transformers film. And there exactly, is yeah. at least a lot of imagination. And as I say, a really interesting plot. I, I would I would love to see, you could imagine, Indiana Jones-style exploration of somebody going around using Da Vinci's inventions mm. and, and, and devices and art to get towards some massive kind of MacGuffin-esque I think uh, Willis finale. thinks he's playing an Indiana Jones-style character, doesn't mm. he? And yeah, his ego does basically spoil, I think, everything that's good about this film. Uh, there is some enjoyable moments mm-hmm. in it. There's a, a quirkiness to it and a kind of what the hell is happening and, and where are we going with this feeling And it's when got you're James it. Coburn in it, which yeah, is never a bad thing. There's some nice little subtle references to his earlier films as well. You know, you know the, um, the strange like ringtone? It's also referenced in Austin Powers. Okay. People, if they know Austin Powers well, you'll know, but it's that kind of throwback to the James Coburn, like, spy movies. Oh, in like Flint? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Right. So there's some nice, you know, there's an idea that they know what they're doing with it. And the thing I I think is amazing about Hudson Hawk is it's so confident in itself. Even Mm. though it's completely lunatic, it seems to think that what it's doing is exactly the right thing. And, And Willis was basically responsible for a lot of the rewrites in the script that were happening as they were filming. Mm. The story goes that, you know, basically, as I say, no one was saying no to him. So he would suggest something and the director would be kind of forced to alter the script at Willis's whim. He's notoriously difficult to work with, apparently. So James Coburn's character, by the way, named George Kaplan, which I hardly need point out, is the name of the fake agent in North by Northwest. Other character names include the Mario Brothers, incidentally. Yeah. Uh, as you say, its confidence is its strength. I, I thought more so at the start. Uh, the longer it goes on, the more... The whole kind of onset meddling boils over and it collapses like a giant souffle. And it is, it is an hour and 40 minutes, but it, it feels quite long <laughs> for that. But no, Willis is a curious uh, Hollywood star and 
you know, you can kind of look back at his career and say, was this was this where it started to kind of go wrong for him a little bit? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I think it is quite telling that he started making things like Die Hard sequels and essentially sub Die Hard ripoffs as well. I mean, do some reading on like Cop Out, a film he made with Kevin Smith a few years mm. ago, and apparently it was notoriously difficult to work with on that. And I think it was the fourth Die Hard movie where he was having some uh, there was a lot of onset tension between him and the director, and it got to the point where. Bruce Willis says something like, oh, tell me, who is your second choice for John McClane? You know, that's his attitude, and uh, it really shines through here. And I think as much as I, I like Bruce Willis as a persona, as a presence on screen, but I think, yeah, he's very much been a, his own downfall. All right. Well, what are we going to be doing for Film Club next week? Uh, well, next week is uh, Star Wars <gasps> week. Yeah. So we thought we'd revisit Rian Johnson, or Ryan Johnson, I think it is, uh, his... First film, Brick. Yeah, which is tremendous Which film. is really, really terrific film from, I think, 2005, I want to say. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many people really know of it. It's got a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's a really fantastic kind of teen neo-noir. Uh, isn't really nothing quite like it. And, mm. and, yeah, it's the sort of thing that if he'd have made that now, he'd be making Star Wars like tomorrow. But it's fascinating that he's he's taken a long time to kind of get to this point of, you know, making a big movie. But right. it's, it's terrific to revisit. I really screwed up. Screwed up how? The brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good. No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink. Like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope runner, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just want to know she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. So next week we're going to be doing Brick as our film club and then uh, the two films being reviewed are... Well, Mountains Made Apart, we'll be reviewing that, but I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with us actually reviewing a Star Wars film. I think a Star Wars film comes out and you, you watch... I, I, for example, is, is David in next week? It's, yeah, it's you, David and Michael. Next oh, week. dear. What if he doesn't like it? Do you know what? Well, David's liked... I think he really enjoyed The Force Awakens and right. we, we both love Rogue One. So oh, good. I think, we're, you know, we're Team Star Wars. Okay. Fingers crossed, eh? Fingers crossed. Do get watching Brick anyway. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, our email remains truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. On Twitter, we're at LWLies. You can find us on Facebook or the Little White Lies uh, website has a special podcast section with comments enabled on it. While we're on the subject of things starry, how about that business of J.J. Uh, Abrams and Quentin Tarantino teaming up for the next Star Trek flick? Yeah, has that been... What, what's the sort of scoop on that? Has it I've been no confirmed? idea I was going to ask you, Adam. Well, t- Tarantino's sort of on the record saying that he would love to direct a Star Trek film and he's got an I- he's had an idea knocking around for one for a long time and I don't know whether it's just a resurfacing of that story or whether there's something more to it. But I, I really hope it, it's not. I've been really disappointed by the, the Star Trek reboot. I think, uh, yeah. that, I think a lot of the ideas have been good in, in terms of what they wanted to do, but the storyline has been a little bit lazy. Are you team Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, very much team Star Wars, oh. but you know, nothing against Star Trek, but I'm not in any shape or Can you, can you be both? Trek-y. I didn't think you could be both. Uh, well, no, indeed. They've even had fights on Hollywood yeah. Boulevard, haven't they? <laughs> um, well, we'll see. We'll see when confirmation comes of Tarantino's involvement or not of that. Anything else you'd like to mention, though, Adam? Well, the only slight plug for this week, mm-hmm. um, 
I'm sure David won't mind me saying that our next print issue, well, we're working on it at the moment, and Guillermo del Toro's new film, The Shape of Water, right. is on the cover. But it's actually, the film's being released in the US uh, this week. Right. And to celebrate, we've commissioned a video essay um, by a very talented Luis Azevedo, who yeah, makes terrific video essays. Did one for us on uh, Christopher Nolan and one on AI around the release of Blade Runner as well. And this one looks at uh, Guillermo del Toro's use of objects and how he uses artefacts and little motifs to kind of tell the story, you know, connect the characters and, and the audience in that way. So, yeah, it's terrific. It will be uh, hopefully online later today, so do check it out. OK. Uh, in, in addition to all of this, I've been tremendously enjoying Jim and Andy, the uh, behind-the-scenes diary almost of, mm. of, of what happened when they made Man on the Moon. Have yeah. we talked about that here before? I don't know not? that we we have, but it's... No, we haven't, but it's really worth catching. It's, it's, a f- it's better than the film Man on the Moon, I think. Well, I really enjoyed Man on right. the Moon, and as a result, I'm really enjoying this, but it's, it's... I'm not sure how many films get made in this fashion. Very few, I would think, but it's a... It's a very interesting window. It does seem to be uh, opening up about the whole creative process in mm. a way that you rarely see. Yeah, it gave me a, a new appreciation of that film and also carries the way he kind of in, in, inhabited the character of, of Andy Kaufman. is quite extraordinary. And um, for anyone listening who hasn't... Or the way that Andy Kaufman in, inhabited him. Yeah, well, exactly. Mm. Yeah, there's this, I mean, I, he does play that up to a point where you're like, mm, OK, you're, you're selling this quite well. But then, you know, you have all this amazing footage that they filmed at the time, uh, behind the scenes stuff, and which is the base of this film. And it's, it's yeah, it's quite fascinating. Mm. Good. Well, that's on Netflix at the moment, as are a bunch of other things. Monday night, we'll catch Star Wars. We'll let you know our thoughts next week. Do have yourselves a a very special weekend, whatever it is you're watching. By the way, what is Mountains May Depart? Oh, it's a a new Zsa Zhangke film. I think it's screened... For anyone out there going, he's not the guy from uh, The the Phantom Menace, is he? No, sadly not. He's a very good... Chinese art house director. Right. I think it's screened or premiered in the Cannes Film Festival, not this year, but the year before. For a long time, it didn't look like it was going to get a UK release, but it's finally been picked up and, and it's, it's definitely worth checking out. But I'll leave it for you guys to discuss next week. Adam, thank you very much. Have yourself a super weekend then, listeners, whatever it is that uh, you're enjoying. And we'll catch up with you next week with those movies. For now, this has been a Seven Digital production. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.